Christ has risen from the grave and is sitting at your right hand, interceding and advocating for your people. We thank you for this morning, for this day of life, and we do cry out, hallelujah, praise God, because you give us the next beat of our heart, the next breath that our lungs take, and it is by your sustaining hand that we have energy and ability to accomplish what you've called us to. Thank you for each one here this morning. Thank you for our guests who are with us today. Thank you for our children and for those who are uh, serving the children and uh, serving you by teaching them in the children's church and taking care of them in nursery. Thank you for them. We thank you for blessing all of us with this time together and the freedom we enjoy in this country. We praise you, Lord, for your goodness in that. And, Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ from Macau who've arrived this last week in Oregon. And we pray for the five-team meeting that is going on this afternoon for our representatives as well as the other four churches, Lord, that it would accomplish what you want it to accomplish and that many uh, would be blessed because of this endeavor and this time together. And, Lord, as uh, the Macau uh, brothers and sisters in Christ come up to Ephrata on Tuesday, we pray that this week would be a blessed time for them and that we could be a blessing to them. And, Lord, that we would be blessed and grow in the name of Christ together. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of James. And we pray today that you would have us remember and that you would apply what you want each one of us to have from this time together, because it's in your precious and powerful name we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It is uh, exciting. The Macau team has arrived in Oregon. They've been there part of this week, and they'll arrive here Tuesday and be with us through Sunday. And so next Sunday, we'll have a dinner together with them after our worship time. You'll get to meet them. And those of you who are hosting or providing transportation or feeding uh, this team, uh, we thank you for that. And so it'll be an exciting week as we, again, uh, build on our relationships with the churches in Macau. If you're new with us, uh, we've had an ongoing relationship with the churches in Macau through our missionaries, Paul and Diana Mayhew. Uh, Macau, I had to look on a map the first time I heard about that city, but it's 40 miles from Hong Kong across the Pearl River estuary. A uh, beautiful community and a neat part of the world in southern China. And so that's uh, our ongoing relationship with them. And there's three churches represented that have come over from Macau. And then, of course, Pine Baptist in Halfway, Oregon is one of the other churches and ourselves. And so they are meeting this afternoon in strategy meetings and to see what God is leading us to in this relationship. Some of you have been to Macau and uh, some would like to go in this ongoing uh, relationship with these churches. What it does for me especially is... It demonstrates that we are part of something that is bigger than us. And that is so important when we see the body of Christ globally around the world and believers in Christ functioning in that way. So we are thankful for them and thankful for that. Uh, let's see, what else? Okay, I guess that's it for the introduction there. Uh, I, I often like to dream about all of us traveling together somewhere, someplace in the world. And uh, this might be letting out a little secret of the travel industries, but probably uh, six or eight times a year, I get a letter where if I recruit six couples of you guys to go to Israel, I get to go free. Isn't that great? So I have not done that yet. But uh, I was thinking it would be fun to go to Israel. Of course, we would uh, get on an airplane and probably go through New York and then over to Tel Aviv and land at Ben-Gurion International Airport and might spend the night in Tel Aviv, but eventually we would get on air-conditioned tour buses, and we would have a tour guide, and he would take us up to Jerusalem. 
because Jerusalem is the highest city geographically in Israel, and so it's always up, no matter where you're at in Israel. And some of you have been there. Uh, it is always up to Jerusalem. And uh, we would get in our air-conditioned tour buses, and depending if it was a seven-day tour or 10-day or 14-day, if, if you guys really splurged, we could go for 14 days. So uh, uh, we would stay in our tour buses and do a little bit of hiking around, but basically then when it was all done, we would get back on the airplane and come back home. And uh, we would define that as uh, Middle Eastern or Holy Land tourism, wouldn't we? We would be classified as tourists. And it's far different from a pilgrim. Uh, when we look in the Old Testament, we see that there were pilgrims in Israel who made their way, their journey. And it was an arduous journey. It was not in air-conditioned tour buses, by the way. They walked or maybe rode on a donkey uh, up to Jerusalem at least three times a year uh, to follow the Lord's instructions and to celebrate his blessings in their lives. Uh, but I was thinking about that whole issue of uh, pilgrims uh, versus tourists. And you might also identify pilgrims as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, disciples in Israel of God, Yahweh God, followers of him. And I was reading a book. It's a reprint of one that was written 40 years ago by Eugene Peterson. You may recognize his name. He passed away in November of 2018, quite a ministry throughout his life. Uh, the reason I identify with him is he was born and raised in Kalispell, Montana, and lived down on Flathead Lake. And I, met, I was able to meet him one time, but uh, he writes in this book, uh, the book is entitled, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which is a sentence he borrowed from another philosopher, but uh, it has such a, a resonating aspect to me. Uh, because as we've been going through the book of James, if you've been with us, you know that we've been doing a series in the book of James, and we're going to come to a conclusion today, and we're going to leave the book of James as a preaching series. I would encourage you to continue writing it, or reading it, excuse me. And, uh, but the book of James, uh, we are going to conclude today with an overview of it. If you'd take your copy of Scripture and turn to this little letter of James, and uh, it's basically, in my Bible, one, two, three, four, five and a half pages long. And we've spent 17 sermons on the book of James. I think this is the 18th sermon on the book of James. And we have dug deep into it. And I hope that you have gleaned a lot. But basically, this is a summary as well as a reminder on the book of James. And the book of James is calling us to live out our faith. If you're a believer for in Jesus Christ for everlasting life. James is a critical, critical book about what it means to be a pilgrim, what it means to be a disciple, because we don't want to just be Christian tourists in our journey through Scripture. Uh, Eugene Peterson writes in the first chapter of his book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, about discipleship. And he writes that uh, an old tradition sorts the difficulties we face in life of uh, in the life of faith into the categories of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil are our enemies. He goes on to say, we are, for the most part, well warned of the perils of the flesh and the wiles of the devil. Their temptations have a definable shape and maintain a historical continuity. That doesn't make it any easier to resist. It does make them easier to recognize. But the world, though, he says, is protean. In other words, it continues to change. It continues to change, and every generation has to deal with the threat of the world in a new way. 
And that's what James is writing to, even though he wrote this in uh, probably A.D. 34. It is still such a contemporary letter to us. It is so applicable because it is all about living out ethically what we say we believe. The world, uh, Peterson says, is an atmosphere. It's a mood. It's hard for sinners to recognize the world's temptations. It's as hard as a fish trying to decide if there's impurity in the water because we are so much a part of our culture, of our society, of our upbringing, of who and what we are, that it is difficult to see what is going on. He says that there's a sense and a feeling that things are not right. The environment is not whole around us, and that it eludes analysis as we look at the world around us. It's changing so fast, it seems like. We know that the spiritual atmosphere in which we live erodes faith, dissipates hope, and corrupts love, but it is hard to put our finger on what is wrong. And I think I agree with uh, Eugene Peterson as he writes here. It resonated with me. He said one aspect of the world as our enemy uh, that he's identified that's harmful to us as believers in Jesus Christ is the assumption on our part that anything worthwhile can be acquired at once. That anything worthwhile can be acquired at once. We live in an instant society. He goes on to say, We assume that if something can be done at all, it can be done quickly and efficiently. Our attention spans have been conditioned by 30-second commercials. Our sense of reality has been flattened by 30-page abridgments. And I might add, our cooking has changed into Instapots. You can have a whole 12-course meal in, what, 10 minutes? You know, really, it's just an indicator. I'm all for Instapots. We have one. And I'm waiting for the custard and the rice pudding. It's not coming yet. Anyway... uh, It's not difficult, uh, Peterson says, that in this world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel, but it is extremely difficult to sustain their interest. Millions of people in our culture make decisions for Christ, but there is a dreadful attrition rate. Many claim to have been born again, but the evidence for mature Christian discipleship is slim. In our kind of culture, anything, even news about God, can be sold if it is packaged freshly. But when it loses its novelty, it goes into the garbage heap. There is a great market for religious experiences in our world. There's little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for the long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. It begs the question, are you a tourist or are you a pilgrim, a disciple? That's the question that's confronted me and haunted me all week because we go through the motions and it is easy to be the tourist as long as things remain comfortable. Religion in our time has been captured by a tourist mindset. Religion is understood as a visit to an attractive site to be made when we have adequate leisure. Peterson says, for some, it's the weekly jaunt to a church service For others, occasional visits to special services, some with a bent for religious entertainment like retreats, rallies, conferences, concerts. We go to see a new personality, to hear a new truth, to get a new experience, and somehow expand our otherwise humdrum lives. The Christian life is defined by the latest and the newest faith healing, human potential, parapsychology, successful living, choreography in the chancel, Armageddon. We'll try anything until something else comes along. 
And I see that all through, shot through what we call Christendom today, especially in North America and in the West, that we're looking for the next experience. Eugene Peterson, who pastored for 29 years in Maryland, said, I don't know what it is like for pastors of other cultures in previous centuries, but I am quite sure that for pastors in Western culture at the 21st century, the aspect of the world makes the work of leading Christians in the way of faith most difficult in what Gord Vidal has analyzed as today's passion for the immediate and the casual. The immediate and the casual. The Christian life cannot mature under such conditions and in such ways. For resisting that stream, we have to understand what the Bible is teaching us, and especially James, because we're coming off an intense series through the book of James and I will encourage you at the end of today that you go home and you read James and analyze the questions that are in the back of your bulletin insert and do self-examination. But there's two biblical designations for you and I if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and a follower of him. And the first one is disciple and the other one is pilgrim. Disciple is mathetes, which is the Greek word. And it says we are people who spend our lives apprenticed to our master Jesus Christ. You get the longevity of that. It's not an instapot Christianity. It's we spending our lives as a disciple apprenticed to our master, Jesus Christ. We're in a growing, learning relationship with him always. A disciple is a learner, is a basic lexical definition, but it doesn't mean an academic setting of a schoolroom. It's rather the work of a craftsman. We do acquire information about God, but we also acquire skills in faith. And James is teaching us skills in how to live out our faith in very strident tones from time to time. The word pilgrim tells us that people who spend their lives going someplace, going to God and whose path for getting there is always Jesus Christ. We realize that this world is not my home. And so we're always on the pilgrim pathway. Remember that Philip asked Jesus Christ, uh, Thomas, excuse me, asked Jesus Christ, we don't know the way you are going there in John 14. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. And then later in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 12, following that great chapter in 11 where he describes People of faith, we often call that chapter heroes of the faith, and many of them are unnamed there. And yet, in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, the writer says, Do you see what this means? All these pioneers who blazed the way before us, all these veterans cheering us on, it means we better get on with it, strip down, start running, and never quit. No spiritual fat, no parasitic sins. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished the race we are in. And James is a book that has called us to unrelenting activism. He said, just because you've believed in Jesus for everlasting life, now live that out. And that's what we've been studying. And as I've said many times in this series before, James has probably been the hardest series I've preached through, next to Zechariah in the Old Testament. And it's not because I don't understand what James says. It's because I do understand. And God has held me down. And the Holy Spirit has, in applying this truth, has held me down. Am I a tourist or am I a pilgrim? Am I really a disciple of Jesus Christ? Which are you? Because James is certainly not a tour guide of religiosity sites. 
but he is giving the active and attentive listener a clarion call to the pilgrim pathway, the way of Christ, the way of serving faith, and he gives us clear instructions here. When I come to the end of a series and I'm in my study over there and I'm putting away the reference books that I've used because the series is coming to an end, uh, especially now, it gives me just a twinge, a little bit of a twinge, a bittersweet kind of thing, because I probably will never preach through James again, unless you keep me around till I'm 105, and then, then maybe we'll go through it again. Uh, but there's this idea that, okay, these commentaries, these reference materials on James, I probably won't use those again, unless there's some special thing I need to look up. But uh, it's kind of a bittersweet thing. Remember, James uh, has been called, this book of James has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament because it is written in the terse moralistic style of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Remember, James is the half-brother, younger half-brother of Jesus Christ, and he became the leader in the Jerusalem church. And uh, he was very shot through with teaching out of the Old Testament. That's the way he grew up. He was profoundly influenced, and it reflects in this little letter of his that he wrote. Uh, by the wisdom literature and by Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. There's a lot of reflections on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount here. And he has impassioned his preaching about inequity and social injustice has also earned him the title of the Amos of the New Testament. Well, to make it simple, uh, I've divided James into three major portions. It's always good to get handles to hold on to. And that's why we outline a book and outline uh, different paragraphs and chapters. But a very simple outline you have in your bulletin insert are the tests of faith in chapter 1, 1 through 18, the traits of faith, chapter 1, verse 19 through chapter 5, verse 6. That is the bulk of this book. And then the triumph of faith, chapter 5, 7 through 20. It is always good to kind of get an overview. And that's what we're doing today as a review uh, kind of a conclusion to the book of James. And so these three major divisions of the book of James. Remember, James was the earliest book that we have in the New Testament. Galatians is the next nearest. Galatians was written about 49, A.D. 49. James, I take it as an early book of between 34 and 36, A.D. 34 and 36. So James is great Jewish flavor because, remember, the early church uh, was Jewish in Jerusalem, the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And so he begins here, and he talks about the tests of faith. He opens up in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And as I said, we will be cruising through at 20,000 feet, so we won't look at a lot of detail, but just so you get a flavor here. In verse 1, of course, as good writers in the first century did, they introduced themselves at the front of the letter, not at the end of the letter. And he says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, Greetings. He greets these scattered Jewish believers, and you can read about this persecution in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And so we know that these Jewish believers were scattered primarily to the east of Jerusalem and to the north, and James is writing it to them to encourage them and to help them to grow in their faith in Jesus Christ to these dispersed believers in Jesus Christ. James introduces very quickly, he doesn't belabor an introduction, but he introduces very quickly. Uh, these tests, these outward tests of faith. Look again at chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so you may perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. These are outward tests of faith. 
The way we grow is when we're tested, is our faith real? That's why we, when we are in adverse, difficult situations, it causes us to decide, is my faith in Jesus Christ worth living for? Is it real? Am I really a believer in Jesus Christ for everlasting life? Do I think that he is a good God, that he's going to take care of everything? That's when the tests come is in adversity. And these people, the original readers, were in great adversity. They've been kicked out of their homes. They had to flee their city. And they were gone into foreign lands and foreign cities. And they didn't know. They were just them. And they were gathered together. And they had a lot of problems and a lot of oppression. And so he tells us to rejoice in trials in chapter 1, verses 2 through 12. The mindset in trials, the profit in trials, the help in trials. And we're to pray for wisdom because we need wisdom when we don't know what to do next. We need it, and we need it desperately. And so there's this whole issue of these tests of faith. Now, God is the one who tests us, and we are tested to strengthen our faith, to grow in the faith. And if you've been a believer in Jesus Christ very long, you can probably look back in your life, and you can decide and determine when your faith grew incrementally greater. And it was usually in problematic times, wasn't it? It was in times of difficulty, loss, and adversity is when your faith grew. When things go smooth and well and you have no problems, which is great. We rejoice in God in that. Uh, but typically, uh, we get a little lazy, and we typically don't grow much. We don't look for the answers that God has for us. This test of faith, and then he tells us in verses 13 through 18 of chapter 1 how to respond to temptations. Now, temptations are inward. He talks about the distinct source of temptation in verse 13, let no one say when he was tempted. By the way, the word temptation here is a different word than the word testing or trials before. And he says, let no one when he says he is tempted, say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. And there's this downward spiral, it says, but each one is tempted when he's carried away by his own lust. And so that is the flesh that is determining, I'm under pressure, I'm under adversity, I'm tempted to crawl out from under that, tempta- or that, that adversity and that difficulty, and here's the easy way out, but maybe it's not God's way out of that. And the divine solution is to remind us that every good thing, verse 17, and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights where there is no shifting shadow. And so James is telling us that there is this time where there are testings of our faith and the temptations will come. We all recognize that. And then the traits of faith, the second major portion, this is the bulk of the the book of James, it's the characteristics of faith. By By the way, the word faith occurs some 16 times in this short little letter. James keeps referring to faith, so that gives you an idea. His emphasis here is that our faith needs to be a living faith. It needs to be a a productive faith. This righteous response to testing is one in verse 19, which gives us a outline for through chapter 5, verse 6. Swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, and broadly summarizes the remainder of this epistle. So first of all, quick to hear, chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. Quickness of hearing, he's talking about an obedient response to God's word. True hearing means more than just listening. The word must be received and applied. That's why we gather together and we preach the word and we teach the word. And then you go to Bible studies and you study it on your own to allow the word to penetrate your heart. In verse 21, he says, put aside all filthiness that remains of wickedness and in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. 
He's not talking about initial salvation or justification. These are believers he's referring to. All of these people he's addressing have believed in Jesus Christ for everlasting life. Multiple times he calls them brethren, which is a a synonym for fellow Christians. And brethren is not gender specific. It's male and female. And so he is referring, he's talking to people who are already believers, but he's talking about them living out their faith in such a way that they don't suffer the consequences of sin in their lives because there are consequences to sin. James one twenty seven is the end of this chapter 1. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father is this, to visit orphans, widows in their distress, and keeps oneself unstained by the world. This is an aside, but basically every final verse of every chapter is like a mini proverb. And it was designed such that people could memorize that last verse, and it was a summary of the chapter that went before. And so basically, like children in Israel in in the first century, in the early church, would memorize that verse and have an idea what the chapter meant uh, in that portion of Scripture. And so we are to be obedient response to divine truth. Uh, God has given us his word, his will, and we need to be obediently in response to that to live out the faith we say we own. And we are to be impartial. He talks about partiality uh, of the rich, and we're supposed to love the poor just as well. We are not to be uh, partial in our uh, relationship with other people. In verse 1, my brethren, do not hold your faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. We want a faith that functions in chapter 2, verse 14 through 26. True faith should result in actions. He talks about that. Uh, He says in chapter 2, verse 26, For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. He's not talking about not having faith. He's talking about the uselessness of faith. It's productivity of faith, not the existence of faith. These are believers he's writing to. And this book is for believers in Jesus Christ, and your faith is existing because you have believed in him for everlasting life. So he's talking about productivity of faith. I use the illustration. When the battery in your automobile dies, it doesn't mean it ceases to be an automobile, does it? It just means that it's useless for the moment. And so he wants us energized in our faith that it would become productive in how we live out our lives and be a blessing not only to our families and our church family, but it blesses God also. And so moving from words to works, or works to words, James shows how a living faith controls our tongue. All of chapter 3 is about our speech, isn't it? It is a convicting chapter, slow to speak, taming the tongue. Look again at verse 1 of chapter 3. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For, if we all, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body as well. And he uses some illustration. And he uses illustration of animals that have been controlled. But we have a problem controlling our tongue. It's, he tells us down in verse 8, No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. and With it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing, my brethren. These things ought not to be this way. And so he calls upon us to tame the tongue. And uh, the idea is, is we need to be dependent on God and his Holy Spirit to control our very speech in this. And then slow to speak in chapter 
uh, or excuse me, that chapter 3, 1 through 18, but slow to anger in chapter 4, verse 1 through chapter 5, verse 6. There's the strong pull of worldliness in chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source of your pleasures that wear it, wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, you commit murder. And he goes on to talk about the strong pull of worldliness. And then he contrasts, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 4, seven items, <clears throat> or excuse me, uh, a number of commands. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning. Humble yourselves and do not speak against one another in verse 11. That's the world's ways. And, of course, we are part of the world. And so we need somebody to help us understand the impurity of the place where we live and to understand. And James is doing that here. And then verse 13, uh, chapter 4, 13 through 5, 6, there is the strong pull of wealth. Uh, and he talks about that in that passage of Scripture. We need the spirit of submission and humility applied in all of our attempts in life and all of our efforts to accrue material possessions because wealth can lead to pride, injustice, and selfishness, and James is addressing that there. And then James 4, uh, 17, the end of that, Therefore, one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sin. And then finally, not only the tests of faith, the traits or characteristics of faith, but the triumph of faith at the end of chapter 5, verses 7 through 20. And if you look at chapter 5, 7 through about 12, you see that uh, the word patient and endurance occurs many times. So it's basically patient endurance in the midst of adversity and difficulty. And he uses the Old Testament prophets, and he uses the Old Testament character of Job to demonstrate and encourage us to patiently endure the sufferings of this present life in view of the future prospect of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he spends verses 12 through 20 of chapter 5 talking about effective prayer. Elijah was the example that he used there. He concludes his epistle with some practical words on prayer and restoration. The prayer of righteous men are, are efficacious for the healing and restoration of believers who are spiritually exhausted. And we talked about that last time. And so 520 is the conclusion of this book. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And so James is asking us basically very directly in some ways, the way I've worded it, are you a tourist or are you a pilgrim? Are you a tourist or a disciple? And uh, if we went back to the Old Testament, if we had time, uh, we could go back to the Psalms and back to Psalms 120 through 134. And you'll notice a little ascription above each psalm. There's uh, 14 of them there. Uh, and it's the Song of Ascents. And the pilgrims who would travel to Jerusalem uh, in the Old Testament and in James's day, they would sing these psalms as they traveled up to Jerusalem because it was an arduous journey for many of them. And Psalm 120 begins with, In my trouble... And the last word is they are for war. So you get this idea that there is adversity and there is difficulty in their lives. And the psalmist is writing about that in very poetic ways. In the middle of that psalm, in the middle of Psalm 120, verses 5 through 6, he writes, Woe is me, for I sojourn in Meshach, for I dwell in the tents of Kedar. 
Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. Well, if you look up what Meshech is and Kedar, they're place names. Meshech is a far-off tribe many miles removed from Israel and yet very oppressive. Kedar was a wandering Bedouin tribe of barbaric, with a barbaric reputation among Israel's borders. They represented the strange and the hostile. Paraphrase the cry as I live in the midst of hoodlums and wild savages. This world is not my home. I want out. <laughs> I think you should be able to identify with that. We live in a culture and a society of hoodlums and wild savages from time to time. The world is not the friend of grace. It is not the friend of Jesus Christ. And if you have chosen the pilgrim pathway of Jesus Christ, you know that. You know that it is difficult many, many times. And James wants to encourage us. The psalmist in Psalm 120 is saying no to life associated with that evil that's represented by those tribal people. He is basically repenting and deciding to live for Yahweh, the God of Israel. Uh, Repentance is not an emotion. In fact, the word repent occurs some 58 times in the New Testament. And a vast majority of their times, they are, that word repentance, that command, is directed to people who already believe in Jesus for eternal life, for everlasting life. Repentance is not an emotion. It's not feeling sorry for your sins. Repentance is a decision. Just like the psalmist here is saying, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. And he's telling the nation of Israel, do not do this anymore. He's deciding to say no to the status quo. And that's where you and I are. There is a hinge point for our lives right here in the book of James. As we finish it, it's deciding that God and Jesus Christ is telling you the truth. It's repenting of the world's ways. It's living out our faith in a way that makes it different. Just as the psalmist said no and decided to travel the pilgrim pathway, if you will, and not the world's ways, we too have a decision we want to go with God through life. And it's because, now listen very carefully, it's because the truth of Jesus Christ explains your life. There's no other good explanation for your life, for my life. The grace of Jesus Christ fulfills your life. Unmerited favor, infinite grace, infinite truth. Thirdly, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ renews your life. Who doesn't want truth, grace, and forgiveness? And finally, the love of Christ blesses your life. At uh, Eugene Peterson's funeral at First Presbyterian Church in Kalispell, Montana, last November, his son, Leith, uh, wrote a poem about it. But at the end of the poem, he talks about that his dad only had one message over 50 years of ministry. He really was fooling everybody. He had one message. And the message is, God loves you. God is for you. God is coming for you. And God is relentless. He will not give up on you. And James knew that. Well, on the back of your bulletin, this is where I go from preaching to meddling. And uh, some questions for self-examination. And actually, these are Warren Wiersbe's, so don't blame me. Blame him. And he's in heaven, so you'll have to wait till you get to heaven. But I thought they were good questions. And over the next week, maybe, or as you have some time, read through the book of James. It's a quick read. And then ask yourself each one of these questions. And I think, as I've evaluated myself, I think how you engage, if you engage at all with those questions, and respond to those questions will tell you 
if you are a pilgrim, a disciple, or a tourist. If you don't engage with them, you're simply a tourist. Let me be blunt to that. Because I don't want you just growing old. We all want to really grow up in Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of James. As hard as it has been.